pretty weird that like a huge hit movie franchise was spawned off of saying like come watch this movie where all these kids are forced to brutally murder each other in combat hey i'm will ross i'm devin scott we're friends we're independent filmmakers i edit i sound design devin does cinematography he does color Today, we're going to talk about how contemporary filmmakers use the Cinemascope aspect ratio. We'll focus on The Hunger Games, and we'll also chat about some of our thoughts on the format in general. Mm-hmm. Welcome to Film Formally. We're here today to talk about The Hunger Games. And there's a lot of things you can say about The Hunger Games as a movie, but this is basically our Why Is This In Scope episode about movies and how, especially movies in the mainstream public sphere, have gravitated more and more and more overwhelmingly to using very wide aspect ratios that are often referred to as CinemaScope, what works about it and what doesn't, and how The Hunger Games kind of exemplifies the problems of using CinemaScope and its cynical use, I would say, as a default aspect ratio. CinemaScope, the name, the brand, refer to a format developed in the 1920s by a Frenchman named Henri Chrétien, and then subsequently picked up by 20th Century Fox Studios when they were looking for a way to compete with television in the early 1950s it was a method through which you could squeeze a very wide frame 2.66 to 1 onto a 4 by 3 or academy ratio or 1.37 to 1 frame of film so you could use the same film that hollywood had used for, for decades to get images that were twice as wide it has since gone on to be kind of the default colloquial term for any film shot in something resembling that aspect ratio usually somewhere between 2.35 and 2.4 to 1 what are some CinemaScope films, Will, that people might know of? Oh, gosh. Well, if you go to a multiplex, then you're likely to catch a CinemaScope movie. I actually, just for this yeah, episode... You got r- roughly like two-thirds, although you can't go to a more, multiplex right more. now. More. I, I, what? You can't go to a multiplex. <laughs> you just go to your yeah. local multiplex. <laughs> That's so easy. Hey, everyone. Are you enjoying home? <laughs> no, I, I looked into this and I checked in 2019, I ran the numbers for two different ways of looking at how many of the top movies are made in CinemaScope. I looked at how many of the top 50 highest budgeted movies of 2019 were shot in CinemaScope. And I looked at how many of the highest grossing 50 movies of 2019 were shot in CinemaScope. And what I found from that is that 12 out of 50 of the highest budgeted films of 2019 were shot in an aspect ratio taller than CinemaScope, as in less wide or, you know, however you want to quantify it, but it's it's just not as wide as CinemaScope. And 14 out of 50 of the highest grossing films were shot in an aspect ratio taller. There's actually not a positive correlation, at least last year, between being shot in CinemaScope and having a higher box office draw, which I'll talk about more later, but... So that means if 12 out of 50 of the highest budgeted films were shot taller than CinemaScope, does that mean the other 38 were all shot in CinemaScope? They were shot in 2.35 to 1, 2.39 to 1, or in one case, 2.55 to 1. Which one was that? The Wandering Earth. Oh, wow. 
be I kind of what I want to get at partially is just to 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 lay out that Cinemascope is two overlapping but different things. It is the brand 20th Century Fox labeled a technique of anamorphic lenses that results in a Cinemascope image, or the colloquial modern term for any film shot using any method that has been presented in, in that Cinemascope aspect ratio. Yeah, it's kind of like the difference between when you ask for a Kleenex. Uh, and you just mean hand me a tissue that I can scrape the mucus off my nostrils with. And Kleenex is actually a brand. It's a, it's a copyrighted brand. And it's just so ubiquitously known tissues that are used for that purpose by Kleenex that people just refer to anything that's used for that as Kleenex. Yeah, or like Hoover or Coke. So the Hunger Games um, quadrilogy... <laughs> <laughs> you can call it that is or actually I, I would call it a protracted trilogy yes it is a a trill and a half a g i watched the last two parts now it is excessive but anyways i actually think that it's a really interesting study in different ways to tackle cinemascope framing because mm-hmm. the first one shot in 235 to 1 but shot spherically using regular optics that you can shoot any aspect ratio on and then crop to cinemascope it was shot on 35 millimeter film second one also shot in 35 millimeter film, different cinematographer, different director, shot anamorphic. So using the actual technique you would associate with the original branding Cinemascope. The third and the third and a half entries were shot in the Ari Alexa um, using anamorphic lenses. So you actually have three very different cinematographic techniques. You're talking about like anamorphic is the original process associated with Cinemascope? Huh? What? What's this guy talking about? So anamorphic means that you squeeze an image. So the image that comes out of an anamorphic lens has actually been squeezed horizontally. So everyone looks twice as tall as they should be. Circles are are ovals. And then it's projected through a projector with a uh, reverse anamorphic lens that then squishes the image, rendering it normal or like geometrically the same as it should look, right? Proper. And the development of this process led to a whole ton of issues. If you watch any kind of cinemascope film made in the early to mid 50s, um, everyone looks a little too wide. A little squishy. <laughs> um, there's a lot of distortion, a lot of a, a curved field of focus. Things that uh, should be in focus aren't and vice versa. It's very weird. You know, that, that got smoothed out, but the anamorphic look is really associated with all these artifacts of the process. Um, so if you have an out of focus circle, point of light in the background it'll become an oval that's that's how you can tell it's anamorphic usually Die Hard's a pretty good example i think of an anamorphic film with tons and tons of little examples of like the squeezing and the out of focus dots that are ovals and stuff like that on the flip side shooting cinemascope with spherical lenses or regular optics didn't become a thing until a little later um, with the introduction of super technoscope and that involved just shooting literally half a frame and uh, sticking twice as many frames of film onto your film. So the film would only run through half as much. It was developed as a cost-saving measure. Um, The downside is it would be a grainier image because you're using a smaller amount of film, smaller negative. Um, The upside is you save half the money and you you get all the benefits of spherical glass, like better close focus, cleaner image in a lot of ways. Some examples of films shot using this method were American Graffiti. Virtually all of, I think all of Sergio Leone's films were shot with Super Technoscope. Modern films, I think anamorphic and Super 35, which is kind of a modern version of technoscope that uses a slightly larger area of film because you don't have to deal with the optical audio track. I actually don't know the numbers on how many films are shot with with each method, but I wouldn't be surprised if they were close to neck and neck. But uh, examples of films, modern films shot with spherical lenses, Um, anything Roger Deakins shoots in Cinemascope, he never uses anamorphic. 
but it's a hugely common way to shoot and that the first hunger games is shot using that method uh what are some modern like that just came out in the last couple of years are there good examples that use anamorphics yeah virtually anything robert richardson shoots uh, is anamorphic mm -hmm. so any tarantino film essentially is shot anamorphic the last two and a half hunger games films all shot anamorphic right yeah let's talk a little bit about the sort of tipping point where i think for a few decades as cinemascope aspect ratio processes became more affordable, a bit easier for filmmakers of all stripes to use. You saw more and more of movies shot in CinemaScope until there was roughly an even split, I think, between movies shot in 2.35 to 1 and wider and movies shot in taller aspect ratios from probably roughly like the 80s through the early 2000s, roughly. There was a bit of a tipping point in the early mid 2000s where more and more big budget films just defaulted to 2.35 to 1. You see more comedies being shot in 2.35 to 1. You see more animated films being shot in 2.35 to 1. So that's that was sort of the tipping point. And then by the time we get to The Hunger Games in 2012, it feels like the horse has bolted. You know what I mean? This is just what looks cinematic now, right? Yeah. I use, again, I, I want everyone to imagine the largest scare quotes in the world around the word cinematic. The Hunger Games has been our bet noir for eight years now of CinemaScope because we, we've often said, and I feel less confident than ever in this, but we've often said this movie was probably cropped from being shot originally for a taller aspect ratio to being shot for CinemaScope. Now I just think it's poorly framed and cramped more probably. But The Hunger Games is a really unintuitive choice for CinemaScope. There's almost everything is going against it. Why? It has a few crowd scenes and crowd scenes are popularly known for, you know, you have wider expanses of people along a horizontal plane. So CinemaScope makes sense. This movie almost never takes advantage of that in no, its crowd um, scenes. The first half of the film takes place largely in cramped rooms. Yeah. When it's not taking place in crowded rooms, it's taking place in a forest, which you might think a forest, we'll talk about this a bit, but it has lots of trees that break up sort of the large horizontal space. For, for wide yeah. aspect ratios. But given that people are climbing trees and the film is in close-up so much um, and that there's not that many people around at a given time, and that the combat is usually so close quarters. The Hunger Games is about children murdering each other in a dystopian future, by yeah, the way. Just That's, for the record. Yeah. And this was a hit franchise. Everyone was like, on board. But yeah, it's not an entirely intuitive choice. And it is used very unintuitively. Where if you wanted to go in with lots of close shots for this sort of thing, fine, do it. But like it doesn't, but that's one strike against using CinemaScope. If you want lots of cramped spaces, especially in your first half, fine. But that's another strike against CinemaScope. Yeah, I want, I want to talk about the human face for a second. Sure. Because um, human faces are probably the most common thing people shoot in movies. That and the reflection of a tree on the surface of water. Yeah. You're watching too much King Who. <laughs> human faces. Yeah. They're not wide. <laughs> they're close to a circle, but they're a vertical-ish oval. So if we want to shoot a human face in close-up, a frame that kind of fits that shape, one by one frame, great. Four by three frame, fantastic. Even 185 to one, you can get a human face in there without a ton of negative space on the left and right. But by the time you're getting to, to two to one, especially 2.4 to one, to frame a close up, you have two options. You can either get in really close, have someone's mouth in the bottom of the frame, eyes at the top of the frame, or have someone's 
head fully framed, but with a ton of negative space, right? The Hunger Games, shot in Cinemascope 235 to 1. It features, I'd say it's a film shot predominantly in close-ups, actually. The majority of the coverage is a human face as the center of the frame. There are wide shots, right? You know, you'll have an establishing shot of a whole room and then cut into the coverage of close-ups. And I use the word coverage in the most pejorative way possible. To me, the bewildering thing about how the close-ups in this movie are framed is that it feels like there's been very little attention given to the usage of that negative space. So you get one of two things. Um, You get a lot of very uncomfortably tight close-ups, like chin and forehead cut off. This gives a really claustrophobic feeling. Um, Or you get shots where you have a character's head against just an out-of-focus background. The effect is of just flat blahness. It is essentially made up of extremely anonymous close-ups where the cinemascope framing detracts rather than adds anything of value to those images. You might be hearing some of this and thinking, ah, it's hard for me to keep this in my head, thinking about, you know, when we talk about balancing the frame or whatever. A quick little exercise that I've used personally that can help at least introduce you to the idea of balancing a frame and, and geometric composition in these things is just get out a blank sheet of paper and a pen or a pencil and draw a little square on the paper And then in the middle of that square, draw a little vertical line. Now draw a square that's about roughly twice as wide as it is tall and do the same thing. Put the vertical line in the middle. You might think, okay, there's like a lot more empty space on the sides. That kind of affects it a little bit. You know, there's more of a sense of the space around it. And now do one that's three times as wide as it is tall and draw that vertical line in the middle. Suddenly you'll notice the negative space is dominant in the frame that you've drawn. The vertical line is there and it's central, but it's still a little bit de-emphasized by all that negative space. And that's what happens when you use CinemaScope. Pretty soon you get an idea of like, okay, I see why having a close-up of a human face, which is wider than a vertical line, but still quite tall, uh, can create some issues with balance where either you fill up more of that frame to de-emphasize the negative space and get way close in on the human face, or you pull back and the negative space overwhelms the face that you're trying to film, can cause some issues. And that negative space can be a great opportunity, right? You have, yes. uh, you know, the history of CinemaScope is filled with filmmakers who have used that to their advantage. Uh, my favorite being Sergio Leone, who would constantly use the opportunities afforded by the negative space of his many close-ups to provide compositional counterpoint to stage scenes in interesting ways, or to provide opportunities for graphic editing, right? You have a character far in the frame left, cut to a character far in the frame right, and you can create a visual language out of that cutting rhythm. Generally speaking, though, The Hunger Games is mush. <laughs> yeah, The <laughs> Hunger Games doesn't... Coverage do that. And I softened a little. I don't think the Hunger Games is like catastrophically worse than your average blockbuster. It's just a little worse. And it's worse enough (laughs) that you begin to notice the ways in which conventional blockbuster coverage is really terrible. (laughs) I think that partly points to the fact that since the Hunger Games, things have genuinely gotten worse, though. Oh, yes. In in terms of CinemaScope becoming more prevalent and more dominant. Because here's the thing. It's not appreciably worse than Captain America, the Winter Soldier. Sure, exactly. And CinemaScope is a fine aspect ratio. You know what I mean? And you can do great things with it. But the frame that is hardest to create a consistent geometric balance with is the widest aspect ratio, is the CinemaScope ratio. 
And that means that it should be used by people who really know what they're doing with it in circumstances that call for it with resources that allow them to make full use of it. I have never personally directed a movie in CinemaScope, uh, not because I can't, but because the right opportunity in the right language, in my opinion, hasn't come up for me yet. Yeah, and it was like the dozens of short films I've, I've shot. Only two have ever been in CinemaScope. And one was entirely because we wanted to frame dogs. Which is justifiable. Yeah, and the other one was because we had no ceiling. So, <laughs> Both justified by practical means and not because we wanted it to look more quote-unquote cinematic. And I think this question of the, in my opinion, cynicism of the word cinematic is worth talking about. Sure, you lead with it. To me, where I started, I think, really coming down on the term was somewhere in the midst of the discourse surrounding, actually, ironically, the film The Avengers, the first one, um, shot by Seamus McGarvey. Pretty good looking movie, I would say, on the whole. Yeah, it might be the best looking Marvel film. Um, at least it's one of the two or three best looking. And again, that's right. slim pickings. But <laughs> the film was shot in 185 to 1, ostensibly so they could frame the Hulk in. Good reason. Yeah, I think it's a fine reason. But I think what it did was it gave Seamus McGarvey and Joss Whedon the opportunity to actually use verticality in framing uh, in a way that is much more difficult with 235. So you get all these interesting boxy, more geometrically two-dimensional as opposed to one-dimensional compositions. And then it comes out, I think it looks surprisingly good. Immediately, the discourse around the films, or at least the visuals of the film, begins to center on the fact it looks like quote-unquote television. Yeah. You know, the idea that, oh, why didn't they shoot it in, in 235 to 1? This was a battle that Joss Whedon won, right? Like, he, he, he actually had to push hard to shoot it in this aspect yeah. ratio. And then yeah. no Avengers film, or what do I call them? No Marvel's The Avenger movie. I believe the only Marvel film to be shot in 185 to 1 since then was Ant-Man. Uh, all the others have been CinemaScope. And to me, this really speaks to the emptiness of people's ideas of what constitutes something that looks like it ought to be on a cinema screen. Yeah. <laughs> I'm dodging the word cinematic here because to me, it's a tautological term. It's like calling a painting painterly or a song musical. The way it revolves, or unfortunately, around this aspect ratio bewilders me because it portrays a lack of analysis of why this aspect ratio exists it doesn't exist because it looks better it exists because some studios in the 50s wanted to differentiate themselves from television yeah and since then it has continued to be a thing largely because people remember films they saw when they were young and want to emulate those and it has become it's almost like this tradition that's been passed down ever since and it's a fine tradition and i'm not against it i'm against people doing things for the wrong reasons yeah, it, it touch, this touches on the insidiousness of production value or the perceived financial resources uh, behind a film. And one of the sad things about digital is that as, as the equipment has been more democratized and more people have access, there's more opportunity for people to be able to shoot films how they want. But I see a lot of independent filmmakers who just default to 2.35 or 2.39 to 1 because that's what they know and that's what they're familiar with. And they're instinct is that they should emulate high budget films because that's what they know and because i think implicitly that's what's successful that's what you know that's what's perceived as the quality standard which is nonsense right like there's there's this instinct goes all the way up to executives who push joss whedon to not film a film in 1.85 to 1 when like i said there's no correlation that i could find between having a wider aspect ratio and being more financially successful. And in fact, in the last couple of years, there might even be a slight negative correlation 
to using 2.35 to 1 and your box office intake. This is all stuff that is built on, and I'm not saying it's because the audience knows and the audience prefers 1.85 to 1. I don't think audiences are well-trained to recognize framing, partly because so few filmmakers actually seem to care about them in the mainstream sphere these days. But it does point out the way that these narratives take hold within the industry and within filmmaking spheres and how everybody ends up chasing their own tail to no avail. It's a completely backwards logic, right? The idea that because high grossing films are shot a certain way, that it isn't because of something about the films. It's because of the techniques used to make them. It's not even the techniques, the technology, right? It's the same reason why we have endless war drum Hans Zimmer knockoff scores. It's the same <laughs> reason. It's the same reason why Teal and Orange, you know, it's, it's still such a thing, but it was especially in the, in the early 2010s was such a thing. Studio executives and I think more, moreover, just people involved in film art at all levels mistake the cart for the horse. <laughs> yeah, well put. And the, the, the shame of this is that there can be somewhat of a positive corollary effect that forms because of these things, right? Where audiences just learn to expect a certain aesthetic standard. Like that, because that's what films are getting produced, that's what they expect from their films, right? Like audiences are pretty susceptible to marketing. And I think a lot of people, be they filmmakers, executives whoever who are involved in some tier of the creative process of making a movie are kidding themselves when they act like they're just chasing the audience and the audience's standards. They, right, it's a feedback loop. There is so much more. We have so much more ability to influence how the audience sees and perceives movies than we give ourselves credit for a lot of the time, I think. And it's a two-way street. It's about respecting the audience too and believing the audience is capable of broadening their ability to watch movies differently right there's almost this pavlovian not almost i think there is a pavlovian relationship where because for example the western people expect westerns to be in cinemascope not because necessarily cinemascope is the best way to shoot a western but because they're used to seeing westerns in cinemascope yeah it's the same reason why people, when they want to evoke the authenticity of a documentary, they'll often shoot handheld and with available light, right? Because people are used to associating those things, even though the, those things need not be associated as Errol Morris will scream into your ear whenever you give him the chance. And yeah. it's a tough cycle to break, I think. Right? This got really theoretical and sociological. And <laughs> Well, and hey, the best looking Western movie of the last 50 years... Shot in, I think, 1.37 to 1. Mixed cutoff, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. God, that movie's gorgeous. Yeah, that's uh, shot by Chris Blauvelt, directed by Kelly Reichardt. And that's my go-to example, honestly, for a Western or especially a, a film shot in an asterisk ratio you wouldn't expect considering its genre association. Um, that film uses the boxy aspect ratio not to i think enhance claustrophobia but to enhance the verticality and to make us more aware of you know the dryness of the desert and the insignificance of the people within it that film especially is such a great case study in the fact that cinemascope wide aspect ratios it's not a matter of them being a horizontal additive it's a matter of them being that while simultaneously being a vertical constraint Wider does not mean more. Wider just means there's a different ratio of vertical to horizontal. That's all it is. 
Yeah. You know, I think wider can mean more because our world tends to be arranged horizontally because of gravity. What? This is news to me. I, th- I think the fact that we see filmmakers so willing to completely rewrite, you know, the, the spaces to fit an aspect ratio that doesn't necessarily fit the movie. I think it speaks to a certain devotion to a technique, even when that technique is not well conceived or placed. Here's the thing. The Hunger Games just gets so much visibly wrong about CinemaScope it very rarely gets things right. The number one scene that the Hunger Games screws up in terms of scope... Is this the dress on fire? Is the dress on fire scene, 100%. A scene which, besides the fact that it has absolutely no dramatic purpose in the movie, besides, I'm sure it was a a scene in in the book. Um, We'll we'll put this in our show notes, but yeah, it's it's the scene where... um the lead character Katniss is on a talk show hosted by Stanley Tucci and he goes, ma'am, your dress is on fire. She stands up and her dress goes on fire. She spins around and around and around. Yeah. She spins around and around and around to show off her flaming dress. There's a wide shot where she does this and get this. The two central compositional elements of this wide shot are Jennifer Lawrence's head and the hem of her dress, which is on fire, a very vertical composition. And what happens? Will? the head and the hem are both cut off. The frame, I'm looking at the frame right now. The frame is about 90% useless extraneous information that adds nothing to the shot. And then the central figure of our person spinning is cut off at the head and at the feet. And neither pieces of important information in this shot are given to the audience. And this is where my pet conspiracy theory that the film was shot for 185 and then cropped to CinemaScope was born. Because it's so clearly... A screw up. It's wrong. And the whole scene has problems with seeming really cramped. Like the reverse of that shot is similarly cutting off yes. her head and part of the hem. The close-ups are unusually tight. And and I want to be clear here. We don't call things wrong very often. I tend to be of the belief that rules are, aren't there to be followed. They're there partially so we can know how to break them. Um, but occasionally a film comes comes along where its intent and effect are so far removed from one another that we can say yeah it's not just oh that was the wrong choice that didn't that that didn't really work out too well that could have been done better the 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 spinning dress shots are flat out wrong and i want to be clear this isn't a generic looking film in my opinion in fact the lighting and color grading are really I think representative of a lot of the good things about Tom Stern, its cinematographer. Um, Tom Stern. Most of Clint Eastwood's late period stuff. And he often, he doesn't, in my opinion, light in a generic way at all. Um, And he often doesn't frame in a generic way. And the thing with Hunger Games is that its coverage mentality is so unusually wrote by his standards. Um, Not by Gary Ross, the director's standards, though. I'm so sorry, Gary. Yeah, I, I wanted I wanted to quickly check into this and figure out how much blame or credit to give <laughs> to Tom Stern. And it's hard to it's honestly hard to assign blame or credit almost regardless of the movie if the movie's got a bunch of problems because so many people work on a movie and so many people have their hands in so many parts of the pie and you never know who's being influenced by what. Grain of salt in that respect. But I saw a pretty consistent pattern that the movies that Tom Stern shoots not with Clint Eastwood have really markedly different compositions, the way things are arranged in frame. But the thing that is fairly consistent is his general approach to monochromatic or dichromatic, meaning one color or two color palettes. 
his general approach to minimal but you know quite often dark yet still expressive lighting so my my pet theory at the moment is that Clint Eastwood the movies he shot with Tom Stern their framing is not that different from the movies he shot before working with Tom Stern and so my pet theory is that Tom Stern brought a lot to the general texture of the image the color uh, and the and the light patterns and Clint Eastwood is the guiding force behind how it's framed, which Clint Eastwood tends to not use a lot of depth in order to fill his cinemascope frames. He really tends to just arrange objects along the horizontal line and fill them that way. He has fairly flat compositions, which still manage to be really nice, but depth tends to be a minimal part of them. Tom Stern, on the other hand, is is really malleable with his compositions. Like... I decided for the purposes of this to watch the movie he made right before The Hunger Games with another director, which is Sleepless Night. And that movie is overwhelmingly handheld, even more so than The Hunger Games. It's really, really cramped, even more so than The Hunger Games. But that's somewhat in fitting with its, it has a really intense, hectic, suspense action tenor to it. And I don't think it's a great looking movie, <laughs> but it seems more in keeping with the director again than with Stern. And then the movie shot right after The Hunger Games was Trouble with the Curve, or that's at least the movie that came out right after The Hunger Games. And that was by Clint Eastwood's regular assistant director, and it's starring Clint Eastwood. And so that reverts to a lot of the more Eastwoodian patterns of composition. Interesting. Yeah. Breaking down the authorship of a film's visuals is often a way more difficult than you, one might think in this yeah. way. You need a large sample size of a lot of the people involved to start even positing viable theories, let alone coming to anything resembling a conclusion of authorship. On the other hand, I watched the rest of the Hunger Games movies. <laughs> um, and those were all directed by Francis Lawrence and shot by Joe Willems. And uh, I think Catching Fire is probably the most interesting kind of counterpoint to the first Hunger Games, mostly because it's, far and away not even close to the best looking of the three slash four movies and it was shot with anamorphic lenses on film until the film gets to the actual hungry games part of its runtime in which case they switch to imax yeah the second great. half of that film is entirely um imax ratio and on home video it is 16 by 9 but for the first half of the film Suddenly, you're in, you feel like you're in a different universe. The framing is much more kind of closed. Um, you have heads that actually are not cut off in the top and bottom. The focal lengths get a lot wider. The specific kind of, I think, failings of the first film are not in effect, uh, mostly because they play it, I'd say, in a weird way, safe with the second film. They stick, again, to medium shots, medium close-ups, uh, medium wides, mostly. They do a lot more with kind of expressive placement of cameras. Um, oftentimes, the background will meaningfully counterpoint the foreground. So you'll have a character in the foreground and then a texture in the background or a geometric shape in the background that either pleasingly fills up the image or tells us something about how we're supposed to feel about the scene. They just use the frame in what I would call a distinctly competent manner right <laughs> uh not never great i've already forgotten that movie often nice often quite nice which is an achievement it's really really hard to make a nice looking movie here's a here's a wrench here's a wrench i'm gonna throw into your works here which is 
it switches to IMAX ratio for the actual Hunger Games sequences. However, that is on the Blu-ray and DVD initial release. The Ultra HD release of the Hunger Games Catching Fire is entirely in 2.39 to 1. And that's how most people would have seen it in cinemas when they didn't see it in IMAX. And that makes sense to me because it feels like every frame has been quote unquote protected. That means you shoot framing for one ratio and also making sure that there's nothing extraneous in the way for other ratios. So they shot it in IMAX and then also made sure that you had frames you could crop out of it at various different aspect ratios. I'm certain they also were framing for 16 by 9, 235 to 1 because there's always enough. There's like a shoulder in the foreground for an over the shoulder shot. There's always the shots are always wide enough that they can be cropped to cinemascope without totally falling apart i don't know if i could ever frame that way i don't know if i'm we should do an episode sometime on the imax problem because there's so many interesting examples of changing aspect ratios or protecting for multiple aspect ratios uh this hit sully which is a clint eastwood movie shot by tom stern and that was the first movie where i felt like there was not only a decline in their visuals but they had significantly worse cinematography in that movie than anything else I've seen in a Clint Eastwood movie, largely because every frame feels like it's a middle ground between IMAX ratio and 2.35. And I saw that movie in both ratios. Was that whole movie shot for both? That whole movie is shot for both. Yeah. If you see it in IMAX, the whole thing's in a taller ratio. And if you see it in a regular setting, then it's 2.35 to 1. And either the 2.35 to 1 feels far too cramped or the taller aspect ratio feels far too generous with space. Has anyone done that well? I'm sure this might be a slightly controversial opinion. Kubrick is kind of famous for this, right? I get, yeah. The Shining. Yeah, The Shining is the best known one, but he protected Full Metal Jacket to some extent, probably. And Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah. All of those movies work quite well, either in their original theatrically intended aspect ratios or in the compromise ratios that he protected for. To In contrast, though, actually, um, Barry Lyndon um, completely falls apart. In 60 yeah. by 9, which, is the yeah. only, which was for a while the only way to watch it on home video. In fact, the fact that that movie, he was so he had such strict in, instructions to projectionists about Barry Lyndon that it seems probable to me that the fact that he was so careful to protect for other ratios was partly a result of people poorly projecting Barry Lyndon. One cinematographer, I think, who has done this repeatedly to some success is Roger Deakins. Um, both Skyfall and later in 2049, um, I think their best forms are their CinemaScope versions, but their IMAX versions are quite workable. Yeah. Um, 1917 was also protected for a taller ratio. Was it? I had no yeah. idea. Interesting. Yeah. But Blade Runner 2049 especially, I've watched the open matte version alongside the CinemaScope version. I think the CinemaScope version is clearly superior. If, if no one had ever told me it was frame for scope, I probably would have just gone, eh, it's not his best work, but okay. Yeah. On the other hand, Prisoners frame for 16 by 9 or 185 to 1, flawless. On a pure compositional level, I still think his best work. Worst case scenario has to be Transformers 4, though. Or which one? I have to figure out. Transformers. Trans- it's a Transfivemers is, is the really, really horrendous one, where they go between about five different aspect ratios every second cut. It's one of the Mark Wahlberg ones. That's the one with yeah. the... Dinosaurs? No. Yeah, yes, that's it was the, the dinosaur they both have dinosaurs. Of extension. Yeah, no, Hold I remember on. it. It's... <laughs> no, that we I just oh it is age this of is extinction. It's all being cut, all of it. <laughs> we don't even need to cut this. No one's going to judge us for like not being able to tell one Transformers movie from the other. Um, I can't tell. Like <sighs> they will frequently. There are three aspect ratios prevalent within those movies. 
more because yeah there's more than three and they and depending on what cameras being used and they will frequently from one shot to the next shot to the next shot flip between them and there's yes. absolutely no reason for it besides using the largest area sensor area possible for a given shot but anyways multiple aspect ratios hunger games like any decision that involves a device where the audience can't help but notice i think in general a good rule of thumb is you have better have a damn good reason to do it you better account for the fact that the audience will notice that you're changing aspect ratios that is part of the contract with the audience right you're showing them a world through a window very few movies i think pull it off i think there's something fundamental about the contract the audience has with the images they're seeing on screen that willy-nilly switching aspect ratios breaks and i don't think catching fire actually really crosses it in any meaningful way um, i i think that picks a good moment to do it it does it it's not very well motivated i don't think it adds much but it doesn't destroy the film first man has a really good one first man has a very well motivated one that's that's the good one where it's not like a book ending device or something but it's like a moment mid film goes in comes out it's like the big effects spectacle sequence and it's all well motivated it's, it's very emotionally grounded in the film for me the obvious example is grand budapest that's why i was thinking with the book ending yeah yeah the film juggles four different aspect ratios and i think it's brilliant but there's not many no As, and especially ones that I'm sure there's experimental films that do this willy nilly that I'm not thinking of at the moment. But as far as mainstream narrative films, yeah, they're pretty rare. I mean, it's a big deal to change your, the size of the canvas you're working on in the middle of the film, not just a big deal in terms of the aesthetic choices you have to make and the effect on the audience, but it's kind of a big deal just in terms of how you'll present the movie from that day forward. So, yep. Um, you're immediately kind of handicapping yourself in a, in a very important way when it comes to exhibition too. Once I handled the post on a film, it was a feature film that switches from CinemaScope to 185 mid-film. The decision they had to make was, well, do they format the film for CinemaScope, which is one of two standards you show in cinemas, or do we format it for 185 and then crop to scope, right? The problem is TVs, it's obvious. You format to 185 because TVs are virtually all 16 by 9. Mm -hmm. or 1.78 to 1. Cinemas, though, there's two sizes of common cinema screens, CinemaScope and 185. So for a film like that, you got to make two masters, one that contracts and one that expands, depending on which cinema screen you're viewing at. And there's just an endless, endless list of logistical nightmares that come with that. Yeah. Even Grand Budapest Hotel opens with literally like a test image, even on home video. Make sure you can see this whole test image. Otherwise, you're not seeing the whole film. Goodbye. I wanted to bring up a listener question we got about the Hunger Games. I think we, we kind of implicitly got at the fact that we wouldn't shoot it in the same ratio, but Steve asked by email, what aspect ratio would you shoot the Hunger Games in? If I'm getting paid a lot of money to shoot the Hunger Games, I'm going to shoot the studio executives damn well tell me. No, um, <laughs> money on the table. Um, right. Okay, if they gave me carte blanche, uh, assuming yeah. that, the director will go with it. The executives will go with it. Yeah. I would probably shoot it in somewhere between 166 to 185. Here is Which why. would you pick, though? I want you to get it specific. So 166 is, in my opinion, fairly compositionally similar to 185. It's basically, do I want a little more verticality or a little more horizontal space, right? 166 is almost halfway between 133, or Academy Ratio, slash 137, and 185. So let's say 185. The film has two significant segments. You have the outside the Hunger Games segments, the city, right. 
and the Inside the Hunger Games segments. City scenes slash train scenes, etc. are all dominated by claustrophobic table scenes. Shooting those in a way that in my is practical with a frame as wide as the cinemascope frame is a tall order. It's a wide order. <laughs> even with the fact that you have like three or four characters, um, it's very tough to even get a wide shot, for example, with a ratio that wide in a small room without horrendously distorting the room because you got to go on a really wide angle lens. So Whitey 5 gives you a lot more flexibility to shoot comfortable close-ups. Um, yeah. If you're going to shoot close-ups, um, maybe I'd want to shoot it all in a series of wide wonders, James Benning style. No, uh, it's a terrible <laughs> idea for this movie. If I was only shooting a film that consisted entirely of those scenes, I might consider 4x3. Here's why I'm not. I would want the horizontal flexibility in the later scenes, the outdoor scenes, so that I could frame something in the foreground and the background at the same time. And 185 would give me enough horizontal real estate to frame a human face and something else in the background. I mean, I think that is a good tool to have in the later scenes because so much of it relies upon the suspense of what's kind of outside the character's peripheral vision. Um, I can imagine an interesting version of that with a four by three frame, but I can also imagine that becoming a liability real fast when you have to establish horizontal space. I think there's just so many opportunities to use the vertical space of the forest in interesting ways because there's so much the fact that Katniss climbs trees uh, characters appear from below as well from above sometimes the idea of people having to scan vertically as well as horizontally the space during a suspense sequence is really attractive to me when I go between 166 and I often shoot 166 which is a compared to the other three ratios we've talked about fairly niche the films I shot in 166 is usually just me and the director on the day intending to shoot 16 by 9 or 185 and going, you know what? I'm feeling narrow today. <laughs> that's how that's how the um, cartograph and Nathan Douglas was shot. We actually just on the day went, have we ever talked about what ratio we're going to shoot this in? I guess we're doing 166. We feel like that. <laughs> you know? Parting message from this whole thing to filmmakers, start making more movies in taller aspect ratios. Practice, you know? It's very rare that I'm against a technique and I am by no means against CinemaScope as an aspect ratio. It's great. It's equally as useful as other aspect ratios. No more or less. Arguably, arguably, but sure. It, it's, I'd say it's tougher to use well. It's tougher to use well. I tend to really try and get people to question why they're making the decisions they're making. I think CinemaScope like Teal and Orange, like Hans Zimmer Inception Booms, is often used for, I think, suboptimal reasons. Reasons that have more to do with herd mentality than sober assessments of what is best. <laughs> or even just good old creative instinct. You know, and creative instinct is very vulnerable to parroting received wisdom. Right, Something that feels right in the moment can just be because you're aping someone else who did it and felt right. If you're considering shooting in CinemaScope or any aspect ratio for that matter, really examine why and try and be self-critical about the decisions you're making and the process you go through to make those decisions. Yeah. I think it's also, honestly, we're at a point where the toolkit is narrowing, right, for cinema that can get distributed. And whenever the formal toolkit that's available to filmmakers starts shrinking, that's a bad thing. Yes. Because that's when movies start looking the same. This is why, for you know, for instance, I'm still very much for filmmakers 
being able to shoot in film. I have thoughts about why filmmakers shoot on film too, that we can get into another time, but I'm so happy. It still is an option that is feasible for a lot of filmmakers because it means that there's more than one door available, which is, I think inherently a good thing. All right. We'll keep our door open to some of those subjects in future episodes. Thanks for joining us today. Paige Smith is our associate producer. And if you like today's podcast, I would really appreciate it if you rated it and you reviewed it and it, you know, will help other people discover it. If you want to come on the show or if you've got an idea for a topic or if you just want to ask a question about a topic that we've announced for the future and we might answer it on the podcast, you can get in touch with us by email via filmformally at gmail.com or you can find us on social media on Twitter or Facebook at filmformally. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. See you next Tuesday. Things are worse than ever.